Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son, Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It's the word of the Lord. Uh, Thank you to Ben. Uh, You know, Ben and I were uh, friends and and roommates, actually, back in uh, seminary, which was uh, no idea he was here, actually, before coming here. Uh, But one of the privileges of that is that I get to ask him to to read the awkward, uncomfortable passage. So thanks, Ben. Uh, Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you are just, you are holy. Help us to see the love of Christ, the grace of Jesus, and your justice and your righteousness perfectly woven together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, we're, we're going through this series uh, in the life of Jacob, just been working through his life, uh, and we come to this chapter that's uh, quite probably the most tragic, um, most uh, significant moral failure in the entirety of Jacob's life. And, you know, frankly, uh, th- this is one of those chapters that you probably are not going to come to unless you're preaching expositorily, right? <laughs> Meaning you're going through the Bible in chunks uh, or reading it in chunks. I just don't, I don't know, I, I, I can't imagine... Uh, preachers, otherwise, you're not doing that, being like, you know what, uh, let me just pick out Genesis 34. This is going to be a great chapter. Let's just just dip into this. It'll be a really heartwarming story, some great, you know, practical lessons for us. I just, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but but as a result of that, you you preach uh, expository, and you, you, or you read in consecutive ways, and you come to one of these passages I think one of the most helpful questions to ask is, why is this chapter in the Bible? Why, why is this here? Why did God inspire this? Why did, why did God choose for this incident to be written down, to be recorded, uh, to, be, to be read and learned from, from His people for thousands of years? And you know, I, I think one of the lessons or, or answers um, that comes out of this is not the main point, but uh, clearly the Bible is a divinely inspired book. I think that's that's pretty clear because it, you and I, or as a human being, is writing up a, a, a sacred book. Right? They're deciding to come up with some sort of sacred book and, and religious writing. Probably not putting in a story like this, right? Where, where you know you have the great hero of the faith and his entire family make nothing but serious mistakes. And, and so we see divine inspiration. I, I think we're also meant to see in this, and this is the case throughout the life of Jacob, where Jacob is being contrasted with, there's a hero that we need. There's, there is a father, there is a ruler that we need, and it's Jesus. It's not Jacob. And we see the incompleteness, we see the fallenness of uh, an inadequacy of people like Jacob. 
And as I read and I reread this story, I couldn't help escaping the feeling that one of the primary ways that this passage speaks to us in our time is through the lens of politics. Uh, now, <laughs> I'm going to make my case for that. Bear with me. I if, if this is your first time here, let me just say this is not uh, every week what we talk about. Uh, but I, and I think one of the reasons why I was, was drawn to that conclu- conclusion is that uh, I really didn't want to talk about that. <laughs> uh, and that can be uh, a pretty good indicator for me as a preacher that that's something I probably should talk about. Uh, because that means that this issue is sensitive enough or it's controversial enough that the temptation is just to not say anything. That, that, that would be what I would want to do. And I think truthfully there is some wisdom in that. There, it's not just cowardice. There's some wisdom in not talking about controversial issues because uh, you know, you bump up against something uh, controversial. Like, let's say you know you you have an issue uh, like politics, right, or race, or gender, or sex, right. It, a lot of times, there is some real practical wisdom to not just making a passing comment on that, uh, because the, the issue is so fraught with controversy. You're very likely to to just be lumped in. Right, with some, some groups, some opinions that you don't really believe, you don't really represent, uh, and uh, you're also very likely to say something in any one of those instances that you're going to offend people in ways you didn't want to offend. Now, that's some of the occupational hazard of that. So uh, I would also say, though, as you can see from this story, that uh, not saying anything can be just as harmful or not worse than not saying it exactly right. All right so, so please understand as, as we talk about um, this passage and, and, and relating to, to where we are as, uh, as a people, as a country, it, it is a limited time. Not everything is going to be said that can be said, uh, maybe should be said. So, and I'm going to constrain myself to principles that I clearly see from Scripture. Uh, and I'm going to constrain myself to try to address uh, implications, even though I think this, is, this would be implications for all of us, but particularly for Christians. Or these are things for, for us as, as Christians. And, and what I mean by that is if, if somebody is not professing to be a Christian, you can hardly expect them to hold up to Christian values. Or you shouldn't really expect that. But as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, or we're called to be salt and light. And that means that there is a high standard. You are called to set an example for this world. Uh, and that's a, that's a high calling. So I want to look at this passage and this is just start with a, a brief overview. It's a long chapter. A brief overview of the events to keep in mind as, as we then kind of go through this. So we have Dinah. Right? She's, one of Jacob's, she's one of Jacob's daughters. And she decides that She's going to leave her family. She's going to leave this you know, kind of grouping of God's people. She's going to go out more into the world, into, into this city. And uh, things don't go well for her. Uh, she meets one of the leading men, leading princes of this city, Shechem. Uh, and he defiles her. He, he lays with her. And um, it, it's, it's not good. And uh, unclear here, I think, throughout this 
um, what are Dinah's feelings about everything that's happening. I, I say that's unclear because right after this incident, Shechem comes and he speaks very kindly. He speaks very winsomely to Dinah and um, he, he goes to this family and uh, he, he's asking for her hand in marriage. He offers this enormous uh, bridal sum to, to make everything kind of legit after the fact. Uh, and then while all of this is going on, while the offer is being considered by Jacob, Dinah is still living with Shechem. She, she's just living with him the whole time. So, unclear where she is. My guess is she's probably a little unclear herself. Uh, in all honesty, that's kind of just a secondary point. That's not really the main point. Uh, clearly, what Shechem has done is outrageously wrong. It's, it's shameful. It's, uh, it's inappropriate. It brings shame on her, brings shame on the family. Uh, but then afterward, we have this offer from Shechem, from his father, uh, Hamor, and they want to make an alliance. They want to make an alliance with Jacob, with his family and his clan, with, with all of their city. And uh, Jacob's sons, they deceive uh, the, the men of this city, and they say, sure, yeah, we'll make an agreement if all of you are circumcised. Now, it's not actually as bizarre and weird of a request as, as we might initially think. You, you've got to bear in mind that circumcision is uh, the mark of God that sets apart his people, a lot like baptism today. All right? and, and so this was given to Abraham, and what would have happened, or if anybody wanted to come into this family uh, since the time of Abraham, they would have had to be circumcised. So it's not like a, a totally arbitrary request that they're making here. And Shechem and his he, whole city, he's very well liked, and uh, everybody is convinced they all get circumcised all at once. And, and then they're at this stage of handicapping pain from that, and Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, they come through and they kill every single male in this entire city. And the rest of Jacob's sons kind of pile in after them and they just loot and plunder the rest of this city. Now, to be clear, crystal clear, this response is a horrific one. It, it is dreadful. And Simeon and Levi, Genesis 49, are condemned, they are cursed by God through Jacob because of this, because of, because of this incident. But the, the point for us and the reason why I say that this passage has direct political applications is that it illustrates two of our timeless responses to evil that are both wrong. And those are passivity and extremism. Passivity and extremism. And both of those are not the right response. And so we're going to look at passivity and its danger and we're going to look at extremism and its danger, and then we're going to look at Jesus, who doesn't fit either one of these categories. Jesus is constantly outspoken against evil, but he is motivated by love, and our response should be the same. That's the main point for us today, is that our response to evil should be outspoken, but it should be motivated by love. 
So uh, let's talk first about the danger of passivity. And you, we see this clearly personified, exemplified in the person of Jacob. Right? All throughout the, the, the course of this chapter, Jacob is the utter and complete failure of passivity. Personified. At, at every point, Jacob is maddeningly passive and self-interested. Now, you, you can just start with Dinah. And her decision to go out and, and see uh, the women of the land, maybe some other folks in the land. Uh, and where is Jacob in this? Where is his fatherly input? Where is uh, his, his interaction with this? Where is his sending any accompaniment, any protection with her? Passive. Right? And then after the incident with Shechem, and Shechem and his, his father Hamor come to Jacob, and, and they want to kind of sweet-talk their way out of everything that's happened, and Jacob says nothing. Nothing. He, he's passive. He's afraid. He's cowardly. Right? And then you have the response of Jacob's sons. Right? And this deception and this scheme. I mean, where is Jacob in all of this? Where is he in, in this this? plot that they're hatching? Where is he in restraining his sons? Where is he after the fact in interacting with his sons? Where is he in in dealing with the rest of his sons who come just tumbling right after to loot and plunder the city? Where is Jacob after all of that in demanding some sort of restitution that they, they should make for the city? He's just, he's passive. At every point, he is passive, totally passive. Right? He, he is unwilling to confront anyone this entire time. He just lets it all happen. Until, right, you see this at the very end, verse 30, you see what is really motivating Jacob. He says, my numbers are few. If the people of the land gather and attack us, I'll be destroyed. So, what is Jacob concerned about? It's not Dinah. It's not what's just. It's not what right, what's righteous. He's concerned for his own skin. He's concerned about what is going to uh, threaten Jacob or what is going to benefit Jacob. Uh, how does this apply to us today? Well, like I said in the beginning, all of us, I think, are tempted various ways right, to, to both of these incorrect responses to evil, passivity and extremism. And and a good deal of that will depend on your personality, your upbringing, which which one you you probably gear towards. But all of us will be tempted towards both. And I think that we as Christians, we got to be aware that there is a strong temptation to passivity. And especially when it comes to dealing with controversial issues. Are things that we know the world is not going to agree with what the Bible has to say. The world's going to be uncomfortable with those things. And, and so the easiest and the expedient way, most expedient way, is just to do what Pilate did. Right? Just kind of, you know, washes, he tries to wash his hands. The whole thing's, I'm just not, I'm just not going to deal with this, and I'm just going to let, you know, let whatever happens happen. Uh, just going to go with what causes the least waves. Now, I think the, the interesting thing there, you look at Pilate, you look at Jacob, and 
their passivity actually produces extremism. Their passivity leads to extremism. Now, extremism will tend to generate either more extremism, or it will push people to passivity, to, to withdraw and, and isolate. So we get, we get caught in these uh, very negative cycles. And uh, you and I also have to keep some perspective, okay? Uh, you and I are not Pilate. Uh, and th- that means that if you are not in, if you don't hold a legal or political office, you're not called to respond in the same way that those men and women are. You, you, don't, you don't have the same level of responsibility lying on you as, as people in those positions. However, as Christians, we do need to be sure that we do not shy away when necessary of naming as evil the things that the Bible names as evil. We've got we to we hold those lines. So, in the interest of just being as controversial as I possibly can be, uh, let, let me just give you a list. Let me give you a list of things uh, that the Bible names as evil. All right? Names is wrong. Abortion is wrong. Racism is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Greed and oppression of the poor is wrong. Gender fluidity is wrong. Hateful speech is wrong. Mistreatment by the police is wrong. Mistreatment of the police is wrong. I'll stop there. (laughs) Uh, there, There's plenty more. Uh, Hopefully, you you get the picture from that list that there is enormous complexity in each one of those issues. And there's enormous complexity in how we have conversations about any one of those things. And so you can hopefully discern that there is a huge difference. There is a world of difference between knowing the things that the Bible clearly says are wrong, knowing the Bible's moral guidelines, and knowing the best way to implement policies that reflect those guidelines. Those are very different questions. And and that means... Christians can disagree with Christians. We can. We've got to. We've got to be able to disagree with other Christians about how we as a society should rank and prioritize responding to these various moral directives in the Bible. Uh, That doesn't mean that I don't think that the Bible itself has an implied moral weight to different issues. I I think it does. But it does mean, we got to understand this, it does mean we as Christians, we've got to be very clear about what is the Bible clear on and what are the things that we are doing more work to get to the conclusions. You you track with me, it means that there's more possibility for error. Um, within those things. 
And I think that no matter what our political leaning is, we all have to be aware of the fact, especially in the face of pressures from mainstream culture, to passivity. Meaning to, to look at various moral issues, right, talked about or not talked about, and say, eh, those things don't really matter. They're not really important because the gospel is what matters. Right? Jesus is what matters, and, and I want to build bridges. Right? Or I want to keep the gospel primary. And yes, the gospel is primary. But in order for people to understand the gospel message, there's a gospel message that says that there's such a thing as sin. And, and it's deep, it's serious, it's pervasive, and it's not merely limited to, the, to whatever things are currently culturally unpopular. So uh, we need to keep all those things in mind as we reject passivity. Uh, I want to turn and look at the other wrong response to evil, and that is extremism. And I have to say here, uh, given where we are in our cultural moment in the West, in America, I believe that this extremism is the greater temptation for those of us who are evangelical and orthodox Christians. And, and I have a reason for that. The reason is, it's pretty self-explanatory, look, if you are drawn to passivity, right, if, you, if you want to be a passive person, then uh, you are probably going to arrive at a point fairly quickly where you don't have to call yourself a Christian. Because the easiest and most passive thing to do today is not calling yourself a Christian. <laughs> That's, it's just not. Right? If, if the easiest and most passive thing to do today is to have no religion at all. Right? Just, just be, you know, I, 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 just, I don't have any, it's just nothing, right? That, that's going to be the thing that causes the least waves. And so, for those of us who are determined to, to call yourself a follower of Christ, I believe that uh, there is a greater temptation, and some of this depends on who you are, but there's a greater temptation to extremism. And to be clear, you can have democratic extremism, and you can have republican extremism. It's not your political orientation that makes you extreme. But I want to start by looking at the extremism in this passage about Dinah. So what, what do we see here and um, you know, what do we learn about that? So uh, there's Jacob's sons, all right, and they hear what has happened to Dinah, and they are outraged, rightfully so. Uh, there, there's clearly what has happened is a, is a major evil. It is horrendous. It's despicable. And uh, it, it needs to be responded to. And their father, Jacob, is doing nothing. He's passive. And so uh, they decide that they're going to play a game. They're going to deceive. They're going to manipulate. Uh, and then worst of all, they are going to take something that is sacred. They, they're going to take this sign of circumcision that God has intended to indicate people who are loved by Him, who are saved, who are redeemed by God, and they're going to use this sign as their way 
of exacting vengeance. It is a truly despicable act. And just to, to show the depths of vengeance right, and violence in their hearts, it's not just Shechem they kill. Right? They kill, they slaughter every single man in this city. And then they go ahead and they loot and plunder the city. I mean, it's, it just becomes this raging, tribalistic genocide. It's like saying, okay, well, uh, you slept with my girlfriend. Well, I'm going to burn down your house over you. I'm going to steal all of your money, and I'm going to sell your kids as slaves. It's, just, it's nothing close to a commensurate response to injustice. But that's what extremism is. Extremism is this attitude of uh, no holds barred, take no captives, do whatever it takes, and the ends justify the means. And in addition, I would like to point out here that in this extremist response to evil, there's a real short-sightedness. There's a short-sightedness to, ah, what kind of reaction is this reaction going to produce? What are the long-term effects from responding to evil in this kind of way? None of that's really considered. And there's one more point that shouldn't escape our notice here. It's a subtle one, but I think it's valuable for us as Christians. And you will note here that Jacob's sons are using here a form of religious externalism. It's a sign, an external religious behavior that you are compelling outsiders to conform to. And this is their way of, of exacting power, holding power over these outsiders. And, and don't miss the fact that Shechem and his buddies are only too happy to do it. They've got no problem going along with this. Why? Because they talk to them, they talk to amongst each other, and they say, you know what? Yeah, that's, that's fine. This religious behavior will go through these motions. It doesn't mean anything. As soon as they come here, we're going to dominate them. We're going to take all of their stuff, and, and, uh, and we're going we're to lord over them. So uh, this religious behavior, it's whatever. So but what is the application for us as Christians? I think that the Christian church in America is under tremendous pressure to reassert itself through political power. There's a sense that you know, we've been violated, right? and that the moral principles of society have been, uh, have been trampled on, and they've, they've been defiled, and, and we can't just sit here and be passive. And there's a lot of truth to that. One of the alternatives that I hear to being passive is this kind of muscular Christianity. It ends up sounding a lot like Jacob's sons. It's this attitude of, hey, we got to play the game. We got to deceive. We got to work the system. We got, we got to maneuver back into a position of power. Do whatever it takes. So, you got to stab a few backs along the way. You got to step on a few necks. 
That's the price you pay. And you know, if, if you don't have a stomach for that, that probably means you're weak. And that you're probably part of the problem. And we have to recognize that that attitude is as much a capitulation to the world's way of thinking as being totally passive. So uh, let, let's conclude here by turning to Jesus. Where is Jesus? I mean, th- this is a passage that is just begging for a right way to respond to evil because we don't see it. It's not here. You've got to go to Jesus. What does Jesus do? Well, he is always bold. He is always outspoken in calling out evil. But he is also motivated by love. He is driven by a desire to serve others. You know, what's interesting here, I think, about uh, Jacob and his sons is that they're actually both motivated by the same thing. They just use different ways to get there. They're both motivated by power and by self-interest. Jacob says, "Eh, uh, I I don't have the numbers here. And uh, Jacob, what he wants is an economically and socially easy situation. And so he knows if he just kind of turns a blind eye, if he just lets this slide, if he just swallows this evil, things will go better for him. He'll have a better chance of being economically and socially and materially comfortable in this situation. And Jacob's sons, they say, hey, we don't need the numbers. We're going to deceive, we're going to manipulate, we're going to get power now. We're going to work it over these people, we're going to dominate them, take all of their stuff, and that's how we're going to get our wealth and power and comfort. They're both driven by the same thing. And you just don't see that in Jesus. He just, he's never operating that way. You never see Jesus scheming with his disciples of, you know, how is he going to get the right people inside with the Pharisees? Or how is he going to get the right people positioned inside Pilate's court or Herod's court? And yet, and he says to Pilate, specifically in his trial, he says, my kingdom is what? It's not of this world. He tells Peter, stand down when Peter strikes back with a sword in the garden. And and yet, with all of that, he is unflinching in calling out evil, calling out sin. Joe mentioned a few of these, but I mean, just read Matthew 23. Seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not pleasant. Uh, He has some very strong language for what the Pharisees are doing and, and naming their hypocrisy calling them unmarked graves. He calls King Herod a fox. He says to Pilate to his face that he is obstructing justice and that he's guilty. Pilate is guilty for this appeasing strategy that he's taking. It's just, well, the religious authorities are more guilty than you. Jesus even calls his own disciples evil. Matthew eleven thirteen, or sorry, Luke eleven thirteen. So Jesus doesn't hold any punches when it it comes to right and wrong. But here's the thing. Jesus died for those evils. 
God so loved the world that He gave His Son for it. He loved the world. Jesus is on the cross asking forgiveness for His killers. This is very different. This is what I want to close with. You know, Jesus... He looks, at the, uh, he looks at the evils. He looks at the injustices in the world. And he says to uh, Nicodemus in John 3, he says, you know what, Nicodemus, you know what the solution here is? It's not more education. It's not better policies. It's not getting the right people in power. The solution is, you must be born again. So that's it. That, that's just as easy as that. Just a simple, you, you just have to be born again. <laughs> Do you see how radical this is? Do you see how radically different it is from the way our world thinks about politics? Uh, you know, this means that for us as Christians, you know, if, we, if we're thinking about, we're talking about any kind of societal problem, any sort of political difficulty, any kind of evil that we want to see rectified, we have got to bear in mind that the fundamental problem is sin. And that means that the fundamental solution is that people are born again through Jesus. That, that is the solution. Don't hear me wrong here. Very important you don't, don't hear this wrong. I am not saying that good government, right policies, godly leaders don't make a difference. They make a big difference. But I am saying that this is a place where we cannot have debate around priorities. And that is that we have got to believe, as Christians, you have got to believe That what will make the biggest difference in this world in promoting good and restraining evil is pointing people to Jesus. It's lives being transformed by Jesus from the inside out. And that just means a couple things as I wrap up with that. One is that as Christians... We represent a Savior who suffered. And that means that we have to be willing to suffer. That doesn't mean surrender. That doesn't mean passivity. But it, it may mean suffering the loss of face. Uh, may mean being suffer, suffering being thought of as weak. It, it may mean suffering a, a loss of esteem, loss of position in the world. Or a loss of esteem, loss of position in the church. Because you're not saying the right things. And doing any one of those things with an attitude of love. And the second thing it means for us is that because Jesus loved me, because Jesus died for me as an enemy, That means that the way that I speak to someone, the way that I treat someone who disagrees with me is as important, if not more, 
than whatever the issue is that we're talking about. Because I'm representing Christ who died for me as his enemy. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are as our leader, as our king, as our savior. And Lord, it's just it is so hard, if not impossible, to get this balance right of being outspoken, of being bold, being courageous, and yet doing so with love, genuine love. Would you just help us to see you more? Help us to see how you treat us, how you love us, how you draw us to yourself, so that we would be shaped into the likeness of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.